Thank you, Chris. It's cool to be here, and I'm glad that this is a Sunday where there are uh, kids in the room, because we're going to be talking about joy today. So when I ask y'all to respond with something, I'm going to need y'all to respond, specifically the kids. Can we do that? I know there's some of y'all that talk, right? Some of you kids in the room that can talk back to what I'm saying. All right, cool. Uh, Can you say joy with me? Can we say joy together? Joy. (laughs) Awesome. Sweet. Uh, Man, I want you guys to think about something real quick. What brought you joy um, as a child? Have you ever thought about that before? Um, Or it's one of your earliest memories of playing in in the park in the neighborhood or riding your bike down the street or playing with a sibling or a friend? Just what brought you joy when you were a child? Um, For me, I used to love creating things, building things. I used to love me some Legos. I'd find anything I could take apart to, remotes, computers, Key fobs, I love to take those things apart, especially when they weren't mine to take apart and I didn't put them back together. Uh, <laughs> um, but my childhood was colored by the simple delight and joy um, from just random things. And I think that's true for most, if not all of us in this room. Unless there's like an imminent threat to their safety, uh, children have this default posture of joy, this innate sense of delight that just overflows out of them. And I see that most prominently in my daughter. She's back there, she's almost two. Her name's Ellington. This girl can delight and have joy in anything. It could be like playing with dirt on the sidewalk or picking up leaves and branches um, in our back porch, whatever. She gets joy from the smallest things, and that's just like a part of who she is. But we don't stay children uh, forever. We get older and get educated or we get sophisticated or we get acquainted with the pain that life can bring, and we can forget the things that first brought us joy whether in the name of efficiency, uh, realism, or even ministry effectiveness, we can forget how to delight. And that's why we stifle the shouts and the screams of children most of the time. Their naive joy, seemingly naive joy, it interrupts our adult despair. It kind of pops our bubble of harsh realism. They have something that we want, but we somehow can't experience anymore. See, it's easier to be sad than glad, I think. And on a social level, we tend to, in the name of maturing and growing up, we kind of grow out of joy as we get older. And on a biological level, regardless of how you think, uh, how old you think the world is, uh, we're kind of hardwired to be able to spot a threat. So our ancestors, likely somewhere on the plains of Africa, were constantly scanning the horizon for the next band of wandering men to come ransack their village. And that's our life today too, isn't it? Like every time we get online or on social media, we're, we're searching for a threat. We're scanning the horizon for the next political scandal, the news of another injustice, the list goes on. We live with a posture of defensiveness against the world that seems to be always coming at us. And even psychologically, studies show that our embodied memories, they're magnetized by negative experiences. Did y'all know it takes 14 times to imprint a positive memory into your brain and only three times to imprint a negative one? I heard it said once that our brains are like a Teflon for positivity and flypaper for negativity. And I don't know if that resonates with some of you guys today. It's easier to be sad than glad. Even spiritually speaking, I mean, in the church, we've, we've traded rejoice in the Lord always, a command from Paul, for a kind of grit your teeth through the suffering because it'll all be over one day mentality that doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. Even in our life with God, it's easier to be sad than glad. It's easier to lose sight of his goodness and trade it for despair or cynicism, but I think Jesus wants to invite us back into joy. Joy is an essential part of the fruit of the Spirit, 
It's an essential piece of our spiritual formation in our life with God. Jesus is joy embodied. Like, how often do you think about that? Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Christ. But do you ever think of, Messiah as, of Jesus as, as joyful? Looking at you with a smile on his face. So here we are in the middle of Advent, right? We get to get in touch with our deepest longings, remembering that God's original plan was to cultivate joy and connect us to love himself. The perfect expression of love is God in body, that's Jesus. And joy is the fruit or the byproduct of knowing that God is near to us, even in this in-between of the now and not yet of his kingdom. And we're almost at Christmas, the most wonderful time of year, the song goes. But I feel like Christmas is a mixed bag of both joy and sadness. We all come to the holidays with some combination of disappointment, nostalgia, pain, excitement. But even when it does come to joy, many of us confuse it with simply a good feeling or sentimentality, the kind of joy that the world may try to sell us. To others of us, joy is offensive. It smells like privilege, unawareness to the struggles of our day, inauthenticity. To others still, thinking of joy brings shame. Like, I know I should be a joyful person, but I've got these overdue bills, this deadline to meet another job to interview before, before my house forecloses on me, a diagnosis that's left me emotionally paralyzed. It's hard for me to even consider joy, and I feel like I'm failing myself, my spouse, my kids. The search for joy, even Christian joy, has left many of us empty, brokenhearted, and confused. And somehow Jesus still wants to invite us back into joy. And just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, I can look around this room right now, and I know there are stories playing out that spit in the face of the joy I offer to us in Christ. I look around this room and I see trauma, and I see heartache, I see loss and pain. I also see excitement, expectation, joy. You guys know joy. I see a brave people, a resilient people who can look at mystery in the face and still see the face of Jesus smiling back at you. He wants to invite us back into joy. The lyrics to this well-known Christmas hymn go something like this. You think you guys will know this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground, for he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the light of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. What do we do with this? How do we enter into this joy? Here at City Hope, you guys have been in a series looking at songs, which are just musical stories. So I'm going to take us through this story of Luke 2, and a few are the key texts, just with the hope of recapturing joy as an essential part of our life with Christ. A simple definition of joy I love us to kind of toy around with today is uh, joy being overflowing delight in God that transcends circumstance. Overflowing delight in God that transcends circumstance. And we'll, we'll journey through the story in three major movements, the soil of joy, practicing joy, and beauty in a war zone. So if y'all want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, this is from Luke 2, chapter 8, sorry, verse 8 through 20. In the same region, the shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. 
Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the messages they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can take a seat. This is the soil of joy. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Notice the first words out of the angel's mouth here. Do not fear. This is one of the most repeated phrases in the entire narrative of Scripture, so hold on to that. Do not fear. I have good news of great joy, and the word used here for good news is uh, euangelion in Greek. This is where we get the word evangelism. It can also be translated gospel or in the language of, of Advent and Christmas, good tidings, glad tidings. Now, when we hear the word gospel today, our brains typically connote it with the seriousness and somberness of suffering, of redemption. But in the first century, this word gospel was a happy word. Whenever a new king was born or a war was won, the empire would send out a messenger to preach the gospel or to spread the good news. And this here puts the next line into context, good news of great joy, right? Not just joy, but great joy. And the word great in Greek, it literally means mega. So he's saying here, like they had mega joy that this news brought to them. And this joy was the result of the good news. Joy is the result of the gospel. And what is this gospel? Like what, what about it made the shepherds drop their staves and go running to Bethlehem? Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. That right there is the gospel. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King, and he's come to fulfill the story of Israel to usher in the kingdom of God and make it available to all who repent and believe. And this good news should inspire great joy. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened which the Lord had made known to us. So they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. So the shepherds here, they hear this song of light from a joyful chorus, right? I imagine they're probably caught off guard from this supernatural angelic experience. I don't know if any of y'all have talked to an angel before, but I'm sure that knocks you off your socks a little bit. But they kind of get through this, <laughs> this experience and they, they immediately go to see this Messiah. They go to see Jesus right away and they leave full of hope, right? So the shepherds returned, and when they were returning, they glorified and praised God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And we'll get to the second part of this verse later, but it's, it's the first part that's interesting to me. The shepherds returned. But where are they returning to? 
the place where this joy was first planted in their hearts. Which makes me think, like, wait a minute, this, this joy was planted in really strange soil. Not the soil of fortunate circumstance, not on some mountaintop experience, not when things were all right in the world. Joy is planted in the soil of ordinary life and deep longing. See, shepherds weren't the noble, respected, kind of stately type of folk all of our Christmas movies and carols might make them seem like. Shepherds in this day were, were kind of nobodies. They were most likely teenage, houseless wanderers who lent themselves out on work contracts for slim pay. And most people actually thought that these people were spiritually unclean and dishonest. They had to bear the weight of shame, the vocation of being an outcast, a wanderer, just to make ends meet. So these shepherds, they were familiar with the mundane rhythm of ordinary life. There's some historians that think based on the location of Bethlehem to a well-known temple in the area that these specific shepherds were in charge of caring for the, the animals that were used for worship services. And if this is true, I'm sure they heard the songs. I'm sure they heard the prophecies retold. They were acquainted with the longing for shalom. Like they too were looking to the day where in the words of Isaiah, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The shepherds knew deep longing. And it's the same for Mary, for Elizabeth, for Zachariah. The joy planted in their hearts was surrounded by the soil of ordinary life and deep longing. You see, hope only exists in the atmosphere of longing. Peace comes from the rubble of anti-shalom. Love itself shines brightest when it's shown through deep sacrifice. Joy, in the same way, is forged in the crucible of ordinary life and deep longing. And we can see this here in the text, but even after Jesus' first advent or his birth, even after the people in, dark, in darkness had seen a great light, they were, and we still are, still in a kind of waiting, a kind of anticipation. We live in the already not yet. And I know y'all know what that is because Joss loves that phrase, the already not yet. We're living and breathing in the air of what theologian called the time between the times, the time between Jesus' first coming to inaugurate the kingdom in the church and his second coming to bring the kingdom to full fruition over the entire world. In the birth of Jesus, God opened a portal to the coming world. He gave us a way to live in his kingdom now as a sign of what is yet to come for the whole world. And that's the vision of the church to function as pioneers of the social order that's coming in Jesus' return. There's an author that writes uh, beautifully. She has a, a book on Advent. Her name's Fleming Rutledge, and she talks about how Advent spirituality, this mentality of waiting, is the undertone of our whole spiritual lives on this side of eternity. She says this, In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can be well called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable of Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. Because we live in this age, just like our forefathers and mothers in Luke 2, we feel deep longing in the setting of our ordinary lives, often accompanied by sorrow, by pain, by darkness, by shame. But because we also live with a foot in the age to come, we feel joy. Not sorrow, darkness, pain, or joy, but sorrow, darkness, pain, and joy. 
We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the language of 2 Corinthians. So do not fear. From the proclaiming mouth of the angel wasn't just the word to calm the shepherds terrified by the glory of the Lord. It was also an acknowledgement of their very dark reality in which fear is the default posture, the main undertone. In a world of dark waiting, it's easy to fear. And in a sense, the message of Advent could be summed up in those very three words, do not fear. That phrase drives repentance, it drives rest, it drives belief, do not fear. So the soil of joy, it's ordinary life and deep longing. And this is always where Jesus meets us, not in our ideal state or our cleaned up Christmas sentimentality. He comes to us at our most desperate. And Isaiah 61 gives beautiful language to the rebuilding that takes place out of the ruin of our hearts and our communities. And it's one thing to acknowledge the condition of the world, right? To see the brokenness and call it out. But it's a whole other thing to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did in the middle of this world. Someone very familiar with struggle and pain, theologian Henry Nouwen, he said it this way, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. So the shepherds here, they experienced delight in God that overflowed. But as they returned from the divine encounter to their ordinary lives, how did they, how did they cultivate that joy so that it would transcend their circumstance? And how do we do the same? Like, how do we practice joy in this dark world, in this soil of ordinary life and deep longing? This is practicing joy. In this contested world, in this dark world, we need vision, yeah? We need to know what to look for. And I'd say rather we need to know who to look for. So before we can talk about practicing joy, we need to take a look at our vision. Now, there's two ways to experience something in front of you. You can direct your gaze at the subject of your attention and take it at face value and move on. Or you can peer into the subject, into the moment, stepping into experiential knowledge of someone's emotions, their state of being. You can step into the moment center. And some, type of, uh, some photographers I was reading, they have this way of distinguishing between these two types of vision. They call it looking versus seeing. You can look or you can see. Photographers would tell you, too, there's a difference between taking a picture and capturing a moment. One requires a deeper kind of vision, yeah? You can simply observe a moment in time. You can look at it. Or you can stop to truly see and understand the implications of what's unfolding before your eyes. That's, that's seeing, you can just point your eyes at the person in front of you, or you can attempt to transcend the surface to reach the inner person. And when you do this with anything, with art, with, with film, with people, with opportunities, when you learn how to truly experience and see something for what it is, that's when it can change you. You can look or you can see. C.S. Lewis had a brilliant quote. He says, those who do not find God on earth are unlikely to find him in space, saying those who are unlikely, uh, can't find him in the ordinary are unlikely to find him in the extraordinary. To some God is discoverable everywhere, to others, nowhere. It all depends on the seeing eye. So what does this have to do with Advent or with joy? Well, we're in the time between the times, remember? We're a people living in a world without true vision, a world that passes Jesus by daily, a world full of disenchantment to the wonder and the work of Jesus, a world that can't see. And the number one symptom of a world without vision is cynicism. And cynicism is the number one threat to joy. A good definition of cynicism that I came across was just the default posture of unbelief. It's not skepticism. See, skeptics, they, they want to believe but just have some questions. But cynics, their hearts have grown cold. They don't want to believe. 
And that starting point changes everything. But cynics are not to destroy joy. They're actually aiming at joy. You see, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, a day, 50 years, you've probably noticed this gap. This gap between belief and felt experience. This gap between what you know in your bones to be true about reality and life with Jesus and how those realities actually play out in your day to day. Now, the ancients, they call this gap mystery. So cynics are after a full, joy-filled life, but they try to get there through minimizing mystery, thus minimizing risk and increasing opportunity for joy, but it never works. They can look around and see the world for what it is, yeah, but they feed this inability to see Jesus right there with them, to lock eyes with him from within the mystery and catch his loving gaze. Their vision has been clouded by experiences of pain, disappointment, loss. Proverbs 13, 12 It says, hope delayed makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. See, all of us have been heartbroken in this world. And when we know deeply the pain the world can bring, that makes it hard to really experience his joy. But if the news of Jesus and his kingdom are truly joy-inspiring, there has to be more than settling for cynicism and spiritual short-sightedness. Cynicism is a subtle tragedy of today's time. It's a quiet cancer. It metastasizes and spreads like wildfire through our families, communities, and our cities. It kills joy. And that's where we come in, right, as believers. We've been captured by a vision of Jesus so strong that it empowers us to bring life and light into a dark world, yeah? As we await with hope the fullness of God's kingdom. We're living among the blind as re-enchanted people with eyes wide open to Jesus. Approaching creation and culture with faith, hope, love, and joy. The joy found in Jesus, right? That's us. But I'd say if we're honest, maybe the waters we swim in have gotten into us. Maybe there's a subtle tragedy among us as well. Maybe even we, people in whom the Spirit of God tabernacles, can just as easily lose our joy in Jesus. So how do we practice this joy? It's just through prayer. Specifically through contemplation and gratitude. Luke says, after seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So contemplation. This might be a foreign word to some of you guys, but contemplation is just intentional seeing. It's just gazing at Jesus. One helpful picture of contemplation I find in the lyrics of Psalm 27, the psalmist writes, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. Some of the ancients called contemplation the gaze of the soul on the God who loves us. That's beautiful. That's what Mary was doing in this passage. She was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. It's that Psalm 1 kind of being planted by the life-giving stream, meditating on God and his ways and bearing life-giving fruit in your due season. And I think we can enter into this contemplation, this intentional seeing in three simple ways, super simple. The first one is prayer in scripture. A good intersection of those two is just uh, breath prayer. I found that a simple breath prayer typically taken from scripture helps to Refocus my attention and affections on Jesus in ordinary day-to-day life. 
taking a short passage of scripture and just committing it to memory even, committing it to be an anchor in your life to hold you in center as the waves and winds of life kind of blow you around. A good one that I've been kind of living in this year is John 14, 27. I simply repeat this to myself in moments of anxiety. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. This doesn't make your situation go away, but it's an anchor that can serve to pull you back to where you need to be in times where you feel wobbly and unstable. So try that practice. The second one, second way you can kind of contemplate God, you can see him intentionally in life, is uh, through creation and through others. Psychologist Kurt Thompson, he has this great line. He says, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. So what or, or who are we passing by daily that may be opportunities to see God and even rejoice in him? Author Elizabeth Browning writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. So if you think of Exodus, you think of Moses, the burning bush. How many days was that bush burning before Moses noticed it? Bushes burning in the heat of the desert wasn't like a phenomenon. This happened all the time. So Moses had to turn, stop, and look to see that this bush was burning but not be consumed. And that's when the Lord called out to him. That's when he stepped into this experience of kind of encounter with God. So how many, uh, like where are the burning bushes in your life that you might be passing by on the daily? Might you ever need to turn to the side, slip off your shoes, and just sit in the presence of the Lord the third way to step into this intentional seeing, this contemplation, is just imagining God looking at you. The craziest thing about looking at Jesus is seeing him look right back at you. And I have a simple question for you guys. Like, what do you see or who do you see when you think of God? What's the expression on his face? Is it disappointment? Is it reluctant acceptance? Is it joy? This is only important because who you see when you think of God will be reflected in how you live your own life. Just like the mirror neurons in, in babies' brains that tell them to smile because they've first seen their mother and father smile back at them, how we move in life, the content of our prayers, our experience, and our expression of joy in this life will be a reflection of the God we see in prayer. Revelation 22.4 says, And they shall live with his face in view. And that they belong to him will show on their faces. We reflect who we see when we think of God. So through contemplation, through this intentional seeing, drawing near to God in simple prayer, we begin to take on the character and the posture of Jesus. Another way to practice joy is gratitude. Gratitude is simply thanking God for who he is. We see the shepherds doing this as soon as they start the journey back from Bethlehem, glorifying and praising God for the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Fear is everywhere. Opportunities to lose hope and slip into cynicism and despair are around every corner, and that's just our reality. But we can, in partnership with the Spirit, we can take our thoughts captive in moments like these through gratitude, praying from a place of promise application instead of problem removal, as another pastor puts it. God never promises a way to get out of every circumstance we'd rather not be in. He promises presence, 
and fulfillment of his promises from within the mess. So what would it look like to recall to mind the promises of God as gratitude and prayer this week? Like I'm in a deep season of need right now. And thank you, God, for being a God who provides. Jehovah Yireh. I'm in a season of unanswered prayer. You guys talked about that last week. And Jesus, thank you for being a God who collects my prayers, who collects my tears, for being a God who intercedes on my behalf. Did you guys know that the two things recorded in Scripture that Jesus collects, that God collects, are prayers and tears? And what a word to anybody who's in a season of unanswered prayer right now. The Lord is present with you. And this, again, doesn't make situations go away. And don't ever shy away from just asking God what you need. I do this all the time. That's called petition. So ask him what you need. Ask him what you want. It's outlined in the Lord's Prayer. Do it all the time. But by starting from a place of contemplation and gratitude, especially in seasons of trial, joy starts to be forged out of the crucible of longing and trust. And both of these practices, they're seen in Philippians 4. I think Paul knew a thing or two about cultivating joy, too. He says this, Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You guys know this part. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say later, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, what? Dwell on these things. So drawing near to God in prayer through contemplation, through seeing Jesus in gratitude, thanking him for who he is. Try it this week. This is not a formula to create joy. You can't create any kind of spiritual fruit directly or apart from God. We wouldn't want to do that anyway. But if the shepherds stood any chance of of cultivating their joy in the Lord in the middle of their ordinary rough lives, They would have had to habituate joy into their being so they didn't slip into despair or or cynicism or the pursuit of shallow pleasures as they waited on this baby Messiah to grow up. After this encounter with God incarnate, both everything has changed and in a way, nothing has changed. They're still shepherds. They're still outcasts. They're still wanderers. I'm sure they would have had to practice joy and let their feelings follow, in the words of C.S. Lewis. We must draw near to the source of life, cultivating our roots, our vision of Jesus. And we'll start to slowly, day over day, month after month, year after year, season after season, see the fruit of the Spirit, including joy, spring up from the soil of our hearts. C.S. Lewis has this great line. He says, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must know you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great foundation of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry, and that's joy. So draw near to God in prayer. Practice joy by drawing near to him. This week. Has anyone here seen Forrest Gump? The movie, Tom Hanks? That joint is fire. I was watching that movie on a flight back with Micaiah from Colorado a few months ago. Uh, and I was struck by this scene. This one scene in the latter third of the movie where he's talking to, to Jenny. I wish I could do his voice and say Jenny, but I can't. I'm going to butcher it. He's talking to Jenny 
after coming back from the Vietnam War, yeah? And he's asking him, like, yo, were you scared over there? In this brutal war, were you scared? And he has this awesome response. He said, Jenny, after the gunfire died down and the rain stopped and the dust settled, I'd look east and I'd see the mountains in the horizon and I'd see how the sky laid themselves on top of the mountain. And Jenny, I couldn't tell where heaven started and earth stopped. So the image here is heaven touching earth in the middle of a contested war zone. That's the image. That's the picture. Our joy, our overflowing delight in God that transcends our circumstance, it can be this image. Heaven touching earth in the middle of a contested war zone. And that's not false joy or naive joy or sweet Christmas sentimental joy. Heaven touching earth in the middle of a war zone is defiant joy. Back to Philippians. This book is essentially a how-to on practicing joy, by the way. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul captures the heart of this defiant joy time and time again. Again, I thank God every time I remember you. And all of my prayers for all of you talking to the church in Philippi here, I always pray with joy. So rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I know you guys hear that Israel Houghton song right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And that prayer we just read earlier about not being anxious is from the same letter. And do you know where Paul was when he wrote these letters? He was in prison. He was not in some corner office or some comfy leather chair with a quill pen. He was on his knees in prayer in a cold, dark prison cell talking about joy. That's not hallmark. That's not sentimental sympathy. That's defiant joy. That's heaven touching earth in the middle of a war zone. David Benner says it's relatively easy to meet God in the moments of joy or bliss. In these situations, we correctly count ourselves blessed by God. The challenge is to believe that this is also true and to know God's presence in the midst of doubt, depression, anxiety, conflict, or failure. But the God who is Emmanuel is equally in those moments we would never choose as in those we would always gladly choose. And I'd be willing to bet while writing Paul in that cold, dark jail cell, he had the story in Acts 16 in his mind. Another story that starts in a cold, dark jail cell and ends in a gravity-defying prison break. And then the whole prison staff being baptized into the family of God, all because of a defiance to draw near to the Lord in prayer and worship from the middle of that cell, to contemplate God, to speak out to him in gratitude. He was courageous enough to look mystery in the face, hard enough to see Jesus looking back at him, to be deep in the soil of ordinary life and deep longing and still pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and mean it. Paul knew joy, overflowing delight in God that transcended his circumstance. Joy is singing in a prison cell. Joy is returning to your ordinary dirty job as a shepherd with shouts of excitement. Joy is Jesus enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him, says Hebrews. Joy is heaven touching earth in the middle of a contested war zone. That's defiant joy. G.K. Chesterton, he has a line from Orthodoxy. He says, each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it most. Spiritual transformation on a large scale. You want to call it revival? Go ahead and call it revival. Starts with those who dare to go against the grain of the spirit of the age. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 16, Nehemiah 8, 
You see that the celebratory feasts that they practiced, they were embodying the joy of the Lord that was their strength. That set them apart in their cultural moment. In the New Testament, the early church, a community marked by rich, multicultural community, days and seasons ordered not around the state, but around prayer, a people marked by sacrificial love and care, they were set apart in their cultural moment. Mother Teresa, St. Benedict, MLK, the list continues because each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. So we're in the Midwest right now. It's always gray. It's always rainy. Cynicism is the air that we breathe. We're living in 2023, a year marked by outrage, by cancel culture, by social media wars, by church scandals, by injustices being swept under the rug from previous generations. What does contradicting the ways of this generation look like? It looks like joy. Heaven touching earth in the middle of a war zone. Joy is an act of defiance against the three enemies of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil, says John Mark Comer. The world, in the city like Indianapolis or even Muncie, joy is a sign that you're living in another kingdom. People on the street that you encounter here or wherever, they're not innately joyful. Bearing that joy would be a sign of the kingdom. It's an act of defiance against the flesh. Over a millennia ago, a millennia ago Thomas Aquinas, he said, no one can live without delight, and that's why a man deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. So by cultivating true joy, you minimize the desire to seek happiness outside of God. And it's also an act of defiance against the devil, because the devil is anti-joy. Martin Luther, who had a lifelong struggle with depression, if you didn't know that, and anxiety, he said, the devil cannot stand gaiety. He can't stand joy. Last quote from a book, I promise. This author, Rick Ho, has a great series on joy, three-part series that you've probably never heard of before. I hadn't. This is a line from one of his books. Joy can become a steady Godward disposition, orienting our hearts and including us toward him. It can be a foundational emotion, a shaping and empowering affection. It can be a current that flows steadily beneath the surface of all that we experience. And this is not the joy of a spiritual novice, but of seasoned saints who, like Paul, have their spiritual sense trained, focused, and centered in God, and who can say without hypocrisy that they rejoice in the Lord always. So joy, heaven touching earth in the middle of a war zone, overflowing joy in God that transcends circumstance, it's available to us in Jesus. So during the remainder of Advent and into Epiphany, where we practice the bearing of the light and the love of Christ to the world, may, may joy set you apart. We're not just waiting in sadness, church. We're not just getting through the days until Jesus comes to make all things right. We're ordinary, re-enchanted radicals living in the reality of his kingdom now. And our joy will be a sign of this countercultural kingdom. Yes to fighting injustice. Yes to calling out what's broken. Yes to the long-suffering marathon of ministry in a transient city on campuses with those on the margins of our societies. But also, yes to joy. And it's for us, but it's also for the life of the world. That's why we practice the way of Jesus. That's what it means to extend the life and fellowship of Jesus to Muncie. Instead of spreading despair and cynicism, we can, like trees that die in the winter, only to bloom mightily in the spring, we can pollinate our cities with joy and all the fruit of the Spirit. We can offer to the world a true, deep, Jesus-oriented joy, following in suit behind the one who first showed it to us. And like Jesus, we can be acquainted with pain 
but anointed with joy. We can be acquainted with depression, but anointed with joy. We can be acquainted with loss, death, tragedy, but anointed with joy. We can be acquainted with the injustice that befalls our communities, but we can be anointed with joy as Jesus was. So what would it look like to return, like the shepherds, to your ordinary lives come January 2024? And like the shepherds prayerfully did, plant the joy of the Christmas mystery in a container where it can grow. What would it look like to become heaven-touching earth in the middle of a war zone? What would it look like to become defiant joy in the middle of a dark jail cell? To become good news in the middle of a dirty backcountry field? To have childlike faith in the middle of grown-up despair? What would it look like to become a person of joy? You can find that out. You can find that out through Jesus. He's inviting us back into himself. He's inviting us back into joy. Draw near to him in prayer, church. Your situations and circumstances will not fall away. But his presence will be made magnified in your life. And I guarantee, over years, over seasons, you will look back and realize you became a more joyful person because of the time you spent cultivating, being close to the source of joy. May you live in the joy of the gospel. Can we pray and respond? Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We live in the middle of a contested war zone, the middle of a world that seems to be ruled by the powers of the world, the powers of the flesh, the powers of the devil. So we ask, come Holy Spirit, increase our joy, not the joy that the world sells us, not false happiness and sentimentality, Lord, increase our gritty, rooted, defiant joy. May we leave this morning, this cold, dark, rainy day, this time of prayer right now, more filled with your joy. May we open our eyes after I get done praying and get flooded with a sense of your presence with us, your promises applied to where we are. May we respond to your invitation to rejoice in you always. And may our cities, our families, our communities, the world be better because of that. May we be heaven-touching earth in the middle of a war zone. Might we be you, Jesus, to those around us. It's in the name that we gather. Amen.